0: Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply.
1: This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching a message from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And the message is called, Blessed are the Peacemakers. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Okay, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then our longer portion is from Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. I'll give you a second if you want to get there. Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
0: All right. So uh, normally I like to just get right into things, but I'm actually not going to do that this time because there's a couple of... Important things I want to make sure that we're all on the same page on um, before we get started. So first of all, um, you may notice that Pastor Joel, our lead pastor, is not here right now. He was actually um, asked last minute to fill in for a church that we're close with, um, close with the pastors there, um, Grace Community Church or Grace Community Chapel in West Gardner. If you know Pastor Jeremy Hawkins, he's the lead pastor there. Well, he had some some things go on, um, kind of an emergency situation, so Joel went to fill in over there. He will be back for the Next Steps class after church today. Um, he might be a little late, but that's why he's not here. So um, I wanted to say that because we're going to pray for, for them in a second. Um, the other thing, this, it was mentioned in the announcements, but I wanted to mention it here. Um, John mentioned that Michaela and I set up a table back there for us to fill out some, some cards to give to, to the legislators, to the reps and, and senators. Um, we're going to have those hand-delivered to their office. And um, after church today, I want everyone to fill out at least three cards. I have it, we have it set up so that that can be easily done, but everyone to fill out at least three, and I hope we run out of cards. I hope that's what happens. Um, so uh, we'll be at the back table after the service for that. So just please go back there, because um, this is really important. And, uh, and we need to, this needs to, the Lord needs to do a work, um, and he, he, he likes to work through his people, um, and, that, and that's what we want to do. So let me just pray again over that. This time you all can hear me, because the microphone's on. So um, God, we come before you again, um, just keeping in mind our brothers and sisters in this state the other faithful gospel preaching churches we are so thankful that we are not the only ones you have people scattered all throughout this nation all throughout this world and you're building your kingdom even when we can't see it so we thank you for grace community chapel in west gardner and we ask your blessing on that congregation we ask your blessing on our lead pastor joel that he would be filled with your spirit and through the preaching of your word he would encourage the saints that are there Um, And God, we ask that this bill be shot down that would just increase the bloodshed of the enemy. This raw paganism that hates human life, that hates your image. It is disgusting, and you hate it, and we hate it with righteous anger, Lord. We, We love those who are made in your image. And we ask that this bill would not pass We ask that abortion would be seen for the pure evil that it is and it would be outlawed and criminalized. We ask that you would do this through the power of your spirit, through your hands and feet, the church. We know this this is a tall order, but God, you parted the Red Sea. You caused the sun to stand still. You can do all things. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we'll now get into the word. So we're going to be covering a lot of bases. Our home-based text is Matthew 5, 9. We're continuing our series through the Beatitudes um, and our larger series through the book of Matthew, which I imagine is going to take us several years to complete. Um, but Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So I'm going to give us a definition of peacemaking. And then we're going to talk about what it's not. And then we'll talk about what it actually looks like, what peacemaking looks like. That'll be the first half of what we'll talk about today. The the second half of what we'll talk about is the second half of the verse. And they will be called sons of God. So there's really only two points to my sermon. So um, that doesn't mean it's going to be short, but there are two points to my sermon. So just so you know where we're heading. So first of all, a definition of peacemaking. So Biblically, peacemaking, in the broadest sense, is restoring what sin destroyed. It's restoring what sin destroyed, okay? And as we go along with this, um, with this sermon, I think you will see that that is a biblical definition. But first, I want to just right off the bat address what peacemaking is not. Because this verse and this passage, this whole Sermon on the Mount is hijacked by many who claim the name of Jesus or appreciate some of his teachings. And um, they completely misunderstand what this is all about. Um, It's not uncommon for us to look at the news, in Western culture at least, and hear people talk about world peace and global peace and wanting unity amongst all nations um, and things like that. Now, that sounds good on the surface, right? Um, And certainly God does want world peace, he does, but he wants to do it his way, the right way. And what the world is often wanting when they want world peace is something very different. So I'll just go right off the bat and we'll, we'll go into what peacemaking is not, and it is not sacrificing truth for comfort. It is not sacrificing truth to avoid conflict that is not what peacemaking is. Turning your bibles to Jeremiah chapter 14. We're going to read a, a passage here. And I want us to see an example of false peacemaking and how God hates it. Jeremiah chapter 14 verses 13 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Then I said, quote, ah, Lord God, Behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. We'll stop there. So in this passage, there are many prophets in Israel, and Israel as a whole is living in rebellion against their covenant God, Yahweh. They're living in rebellion against him. And the prophets who were commissioned to warn the people and to to tell them to go back to God, to remind them of all that God has done, instead of doing that, they wanted to avoid conflict. They were pretty comfortable when the people liked them. So instead of saying, hey, God's going to judge you if you don't repent, if you don't turn, if you don't stop worshiping idols and killing your children, if you don't stop doing that, God is going to judge you and destroy you. They didn't didn't want that message because it was unpopular. People didn't like it. They knew not a lot of people would believe it. So instead of speaking the truth, they opted in for comfort. They opted in to avoid conflict. And I can just imagine, translate that into nowadays, people making a similar argument. Well, aren't we supposed to be peacemakers? So shouldn't we be avoiding conflict in the world? Shouldn't we be seeking comfort? Now, comfort is a good thing in and of itself. And the absence of conflict is a good thing in and of itself. But not when it is at the expense of the truth. And these prophets in Jeremiah's time were not speaking the truth. Jeremiah and only a few faithful remnant were speaking the truth in love. And in boldness. And it's a great temptation in our day and age to do the same thing. So I want us to be clear on the front end peacemaking is not sacrificing the truth. We often act as if the truth of Christ is subservient to being conflict free. But the truth is, if you are a Christian, you should expect conflict because though Jesus is the king of peace, the way he brings about peace, as we will see, is through his death and resurrection. And humanity, in order to obtain peace, must be crucified and raised with Christ. That is the only way. That is the only way. And because we're part of a kingdom that is not of this world, we're part of God's kingdom that is, that is here on earth and growing as we've talked about many times, we should expect that the present order should be opposed to what we are trying to do. They should, they're opposed to what God wants. That's always been the case, and it will be until every last enemy is put under the feet of Jesus, which will happen when he returns. So we're supposed to be swimming against the current, not with it. And we could spend a lot more time on that, but for the sake of our time here, we're going to proceed with what peacemaking actually looks like. So what does it look like? And it looks like the way of the cross. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we need to look to him to see what peace really looks like. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And while you're turning there, peacemaking is restoring something that's been destroyed by sin. So, there could be no peace if sin still remains. If there's still sin, there can be no peace. Because sin is the very cause of conflict and brokenness. And no matter how many people grope for it, there will never be world peace as long as people remain in love with their sin. That will never happen. Families will dissolve, abuse will continue. Wars will wage until the source of the conflict is dealt with. So in James 4, in the first couple of verses, this is what the word of the Lord says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So conflict. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So we see what the Holy Spirit is teaching us from that passage. Is that anytime you see division, it's because of pride. It's because of selfishness, i.e. sin. Selfishness, sin, pride. That is the cause of conflict, And if everyone were selfless, if everyone considered others as more important than themselves, then there wouldn't be conflict. There wouldn't be issues in relationships. Talk more about that in a second. But this isn't the world we live in. That's not the world we live in. People are by nature selfish. We love ourselves more than others. And what's worse, we actually love that we love ourselves more than others. That's a mess. It's, it's, it's an utter mess. Left on our own, we don't, we don't want to change. The word says that nobody seeks after God. Nobody truly seeks what's ultimately good. We seek what's good so far as it benefits us and is convenient for us, but we never do it for the right motives, which is to please God. And that's us in our natural state, apart from God doing any work. And our most fundamental problem is that 6,000 years ago, We revolted against God in the garden. In Adam, our greatest grandfather, we revolted against God. And our nature has become so cursed and corrupted that we crave the darkness and we hate the light and we delight in sin and we disdain true goodness. And we don't like God. We don't want God involved because he's a threat. the sin that we love so much in our natural state. But this is where the good news comes in in the passage that, that Daniel read. Our merciful maker did not leave us that way. He did not leave us that way. The father had always had a peculiar plan to save his rebellious creation through his son. And his son would bring peace to the world. But he would do it in, a, in an upside-down way, one, a way that we're not too familiar with, naturally. He did it by laying down his own life. We would think the king would come in and he would just conquer and force people to live at peace, but that's not what he did. The God of all creation came down and humbled himself. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Danielle read it earlier, Ephesians chapter 2. I won't read the whole passage, I'll just point out a particular verse, but I want you guys to see it. Focus in on verse 16. It's talking about his own crucifixion. Um... Actually, I'm sorry, probably verse 15. By abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what, what the Bible is teaching us is that when there's conflict, between us, which is the most, most visible conflict that we see, is conflict between other people. That is a fruit of a deeper problem. It's the fruit of conflict between yourself and God. Sin separates us from God, as most of us should know, if we know the Bible at all. Sin separates us from God. And the ultimate goal, and, and this is the gospel in, in a nutshell, there's so many ways you can express it, but if you take a step back and look from Genesis to Revelation and you want to say it briefly, the goal of God in the gospel is to reunite God and man. Creation, it's to reunite heaven and earth. That is the, the overarching thing, that, that we would have fellowship with God in an even deeper way than we did in the garden to begin with that we would be co-heirs with his son, and that he would have many sons through Christ. But notice it's, it's that we would together have peace with God. So when we have peace with God, we have peace with everyone else who has peace with God. And you can start to see how this is so relevant to, to us in this gathering. That most of us here, if if you have believed on Jesus, you've been baptized in his name publicly, then you're proclaiming that you are a child of God, that Jesus is your king. And when we have him as our unifying point, then we, we really do have unity together. And it's always when we neglect his death and resurrection that we focus on other things and have disunity. I'm not saying that every local church needs to just come together as one big church in their town and forget about their doctrinal differences. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what the Lord wants. What I'm, I'm not, so I'm not talking about every Christian has to be in the same local church. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that we recognize one another as brothers. And yeah, we might have some significant differences that force us to be in different assemblies because they're so glaring. But ultimately, when you boil it all down, Jesus' death and resurrection is at the heart. And whoever that is the case for, we can have true unity with them. Because they're part of the new humanity. They're part of this new work that God has started. And that is so amazing when you consider the probably the most famous time in history when humanity tried to be united apart from God. It's the Tower of Babel. How many of you are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel? Raise raise your hand up high if you are. So, most of us here. For those of you who aren't, all of humanity gathered together. This is um, right after the flood, so this is several thousand years ago, about 4,000 years ago, maybe more. And everyone gathered in this area that um, it's in the Middle East, as we would call it today. And everyone gathered together. There was one language at that time, and they gathered together to build a tower. And that seems harmless, but what it was, it was, it was an act of pagan worship, and they wanted to bring glory to themselves. That's what it was. And they, they said to themselves, if we're, if we're united, nothing's going to be impossible for us. And God, and God said that. God, God looked at them, he's like, well, if they're united in their sin, then they're going to commit unspeakable evils and, and ultimately destroy their own race. So in his mercy, God divided them by causing confusion through their languages. And then that's how all the, um, the ancestors of every nation was born, with all the different languages that they all scattered abroad. And whoever had the same language, they gathered with them. So that's the source of there being multiple nations. But what we see at the cross, and I want you guys to get this, because this is so This is so amazing. What Jesus did at the cross was he undid Babel. He undid Babel. So look at, um, you, can, you, can just, you can turn there if you want to, John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. I'm gonna read it here. This is, this is the words of our Lord Jesus. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. When I am lifted up from the earth, and the, previous, uh, the following verses tell us that he's talking about the manner of death with which he was going to die. So we know he's talking about the cross. When he's lifted up on the cross, his cross will unite all to himself. Which is so crazy and mind-boggling that this man's death would be the unifying point. Right? And this is what we see At Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection, you have people, Jews, God-fearers, from all sorts of nations gathered together at one point. Jesus Christ is proclaimed to them by Peter, and they all believe, but they all speak different languages. And when Peter preaches, they all hear his sermon in their language. It's the the gift of tongues at that point, which is really the gift of hearing in some ways. Um, It's a miracle that they they heard the gospel of Jesus in their own languages. And it made sense to them. He's undoing Babel. He's uniting a new humanity in himself. So God does want humanity to be unified, but he wants to do it the right way. Way because the old humanity won't do, it's corrupted. Our old nature, it's another way of saying it, our old nature is so corrupted, we love sin. So we can never have true peace and unify people who are still in their sin. Because sin is the cause of division. But when sin is dealt with at the cross of Jesus, anyone who looks to him, they're part of a new humanity, they're given a new nature, a new heart. And now, humanity can have true unity through the one way, Jesus Christ. And right now, we're living in this time where God is building his kingdom, and he's saving people. And, and it's, it's in a progression right now, for however long he decides it to be. But one day, the ultimate end, when Jesus returns... All those who are in rebellion against him will be done away with eternal destruction. But the billions and billions and billions of people that he has saved will be together as a new humanity to live on a new earth forever. And that is God's ultimate goal. That's where he is taking this ship of human history. That's where it's going. So get on board. Don't be left behind. That's the real left behind you need to worry about, by the way. That's the real one. That's not what the sermon's about, but just FYI. But now you may be asking, well, hang on. We've talked a lot about Jesus being a peacemaker, um, but isn't the verse talking about us being peacemakers, right? That is, that is that's an astute observation. Thank you for making that observation. Um, yes, it is. But remember, it has to be through Christ, that we are peacemakers. So if we want to know what it looks like to be a peacemaker, we have to look at Jesus first. We have to look at him. So um, just think about it this way. If Jesus, to, to bring peace to earth, had to go through death and resurrection, we too have to go through death and resurrection. We need to die to ourselves and be raised unto Christ. We need to live as Christ. I live, but it's not I, it's Christ in me, okay? So, when you have a stressful friendship and there's conflict there, what needs to happen? You need to die to yourself. You need to surrender. Instead of thinking about all the reasons they're wrong and all of their sin, look at your own sin. Lay it on the cross of Jesus, repent of it, let it die let it be buried and choose to walk in the newness of life that he offers us through the spirit and that's not just something that happens initially at conversion that we are to walk in the spirit as christians we paul said i die daily martin luther said that the christian life is a daily return to his baptism death and resurrection that that is how we're to live our lives dying and living Wives, um, (laughs) you must put your tongue to death when you want to make a snarky comment about your husband. Instead, build them up with your words. Husbands, you need to crucify your desires to check out when there's stress at home. Be a man and address the conflict. Crucify it with Christ and let Christ's ways be raised in your home. And as the leader, it's your job to instill that. Christians, don't, don't complain about your church and cause division. Instead, choose to focus on what is good. See what work God is doing through Jesus. And, and thank people for that. And what, what we're doing when we do that is we're dying to ourselves. We're dying to what our fleshly inclinations want us to do which has caused division and instead we're choosing to walk the way of Christ so the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart and the works of our hands are to reflect those of Jesus and that is how we bring peace and life into the world and we you know and when we're talking about world peace that's like that's a tall order that's not something we're supposed to do by the way that's something god does through his holy spirit through the gospel, through his church as a whole. But we can't bring peace to the world as a whole. But you are an ambassador of Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, individually and as corporately. So where we are, we can affect peace. Whatever you have dominion over, if you, if, if you have a family, husband and wife, that's your domain, and you are to bring peace, you're, you're, you're to bring the peace of Christ there. Your home should be the most safe place for your children. And others, it should be a hospitable place because the love of Christ should reside over it. And if it's not that way, get to work. There's sin to kill. If it's not that way, there is sin that still needs to be crucified. And the life of Christ still needs to be raised there. And you can fill in the blank. There's so many ways that we could apply that. But I hope you see the example is Christ every time. And it's not peace for the sake of peace. It's peace for the sake of Christ. So he gets the glory. And that is the only way that sin can be dealt with. And therefore, unity and peace can exist. So I've taken a lot of time on that. The last part of our sermon and our time together is going to be focused on the last part of the verse in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, I shouldn't have to say this, but I guess maybe our our language and culture are changing, so it might not be as obvious to some, especially those who aren't familiar with the way the Bible says things, but when it says... They will be called sons of God. It's not excluding women. Um, certainly God has, if, if you are in Christ and you're a female, you are a daughter of God. But this is just the way the Bible uses the language, and, 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 and it is good. And there's plenty more I could say on that, but that's not the point. It does include men and women, sons and daughters. Um, but I'm just going to say son because that's what the passage says. So you can, you can fill that in after the fact. What we're going to look at here is three things, and hopefully you can keep these in your memory. and try to keep it, keep it uh, memorable. We're going to look at the what, the how, and the when of being God's son, being his children. The what, so what it means, how it happens, and when it happens. Okay? So first, what does it mean to be God's son? Well, again, we need to look no further than his only begotten Son, his true Son. From all eternity, Jesus was eternally begotten from the Father. No beginning, no end, eternally begotten. And this is how um, the Nicene Creed puts it, and this is a creed that virtually all Christians throughout time, since it was written, have affirmed. It's kind of a standard of orthodoxy or not, and I I believe it's a wonderful creed. This is what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Listen to this. Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. I could preach all day on that. I love that so much. But the point of that, the essence of it, is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And if we want to know what it means to be sons of God, we need to look to the true ultimate Son of God. Because we are sons of God through adoption. He is so, the son of God through his essence and his nature. Okay? Again, there's that, very deep waters there. And if you have further questions about uh, that, I'd love to talk about it. But for the sake of our sermon, we do need to continue. So think, think of another, another thing that can be helpful here is sons in most cultures, especially firstborn sons, Um, Their fathers leave them an inheritance. Now, we don't do that so much in our culture, which I think is a shame. Um, But it used to be that way in our culture, and it's like that with most cultures in the world. Fathers leave inheritance for their children, and they usually prioritize their firstborn. That's, That's very common. And listen to what the father gave to the son, Jesus, as an inheritance. I, this is from Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's, that should ring a bell. That was what the father said to the son at his baptism, right? So he's quoting it. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay? So what's happening here? Ultimately, God made creation through the Son, for the Son. Through the Son, for the Son. It all belongs to him. It's all his. This is his inheritance. And this is a very God-centered view of things. And when we miss this, we think that this creation is all about us. But only secondarily. It is primarily about God. And the father's love for his son. That's what it's about. And by extension, as we'll see in a second, it applies to us. But we see that from the very beginning, God's intention, the father's intention was to give the son this inheritance, this creation to rule and reign over. But listen to how this applies to us. And this is so beautiful some people back away from this verse because it's kind of scary when, when we don't understand the deep truths of it. So I'm going to read it. It's Romans 8:29. This is what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God predestined all Christians to be conformed into the image of his son because he loves his son so much. He wanted more people like him. He loves his son so much, he wanted more of him. That's what what he's saying. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son because he loves his son so much. He wants us, all of his people, all who believe, to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers. So I hope you see how glorious that is. And this gets at the heart of why he made us to begin with. We were made to share in the love the Father has for the Son. That is why we were made to share in the love the Father has for the Son and therefore give Him glory. Listen to um, how this applies to us when it comes to inheritance because really what we're getting at here, what it means to be God's Son is to share in God's love and in the inheritance that He has for His Son. So listen to... Um, this is another passage from Romans 8. and In fact, you might as well just turn there because there's a couple places I'm going to be reading from that. Um, Romans 8. So we just read verse 29, and I highly encourage you to meditate on those preceding verses because they are incredible. But verse 18 of Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, catch this, then Heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what's happening is what Jesus gets, we get, because we're in him. So when Jesus dies for sin, we die from sin. Because of him. We die in him. When Jesus is raised from the dead, we are raised from the dead in him. And God gave the inheritance of creation to Jesus, and we are co-heirs of that. We see it in small ways now in the present order. But when Christ comes back and he consummates his kingdom... And all all creation finds its resurrection, which we're going to see in a second. That is when what we currently have is the down payment of our inheritance. But our full inheritance will come at that point. And we will share in the new creation, in a new earth. And I've said this many times, but I think it's important because it's kind of in the water in in our Christianese culture. When we think of the afterlife, when we think of eternity, we think of... A place up in the clouds where we're going to be playing harps and we're not really it's not really going to be physical that is so wrong now when you die before christ comes back and you're in christ yes you do go to be with the lord absent from your body but that is temporary because when christ comes back he returns with all of his saints and all of his people are raised from the dead and given resurrected bodies that is the ultimate goal For us to have physical bodies that are perfected and for creation to be perfected and live on that creation with him, heaven and earth, just like in the garden, but even more so reunited again. The whole creation will be the Garden of Eden. It won't just be a small spot on the planet. It will be the whole creation. So, so that's what it means to be God's son in a nutshell. There's obviously more we could have said, but um, I am running short on time, so I, I want to make sure we get through this. So let's look at the how, how to become God's son, and it's so simple. This is uh, what Galatians 3, verse 26 says, and hear the words of the Lord here. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. This is not. This is not something that you earn at all. It is those who have faith in Jesus that God declares to be his sons. But why? Why, why faith? Why, why does he bestow sonship on those who have faith? Because if sonship is bestowed through faith, it can be counted as a gift and not a wage. Not a paycheck. If we had to do something for God, such as avoid sinning for a certain amount of time, make a trip to the Holy Land, memorize a bunch of verses in the Bible or a catechism, give money to the poor, any of those things, then we we could boast in our abilities and therefore take glory from God. We could take credit for him bestowing us as sons. Like, of course he wanted me as a son. Of course. Because I did blah, blah, blah. God wanted to rule that out. So instead, he chose to bestow sonship on those who believe. But what is it about faith that is so pleasing to God? Is it like the ultimate act of goodness? Far from it. Listen to what John Calvin said about faith. And I love this quote so much, and I hope, I hope you memorize it because it is truly, truly glorious. This is what John Calvin said. Faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Nothing to offer, but everything to receive. So just, just imagine a beggar, a beggar, okay? A spiritual beggar, someone who's poor in spirit as we saw, which by the way, no one will ever be poor in spirit unless God does a work on them because we we do not naturally seek after God. But he, by his mercy, brings us to a place where we recognize our utter dependence and our bankruptcy spiritually. And it's those beggars that he chooses to bestow sonship on and give the inheritance to. Because he gets 100% of the glory for that. 100% of the glory. And this is what was so incredible about Christianity. And it is now. But especially in the beginning when it was so, so new. The people who were the most neglected were, were the poor, the women, the children. And all the rich people, the powerful people, they're the ones that were exalted in the culture. But the gospel came in and said, No. I want the people who recognize they are nothing. I want those people. Because God gets the most glory. Through our weakness, his strength is made known. And that's, that's the beauty of, of this good news. It's so upside down. But it's so glorious. So if you want to become a part of God's family, then you need only to believe in the Son. Throw yourself On his mercy, be publicly baptized in his name, showing that you really do believe this, that you really do believe this, and join his kingdom on earth. Join this kingdom of peacemakers that he is building on this earth. So, the last few minutes um, of your time, I, I want to talk about the when of this. When will we become God's sons? When will that happen? I think the timing might. Be not something you thought about before. Turn to Romans 8. You already should be in Romans 8 um, from what we, what we talked about. Romans 8, looking in verses 18 to 23. Romans 8, 18 to 23. Come to think of it, I probably should have had uh, Danielle read this passage instead of Ephesians. We spent more time here. But oh well. Live and you learn. Romans 8, verses 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation is longing for whatever this is. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And catch, catch these last couple of verses, so essential. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption As sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I'll try to boil that down. What the scripture is saying here is that our adoption day is our resurrection day. When Jesus comes back and all of his people from all ages are raised from the dead, that is the day of our adoption. Right now, we have the Spirit as a down payment as a firstfruits of that adoption. He gave us his spirit now, in time, before the resurrection, to prove to us he's gonna make good on his payment. He, he's, gonna, he's gonna make good on his promise. That's why it's so significant for us to understand that that day is what all creation is, is groaning for. And, th- and think of it, it even uses this analogy in, in Romans 8, the, the thought of a woman who's, who's pregnant and about to give birth, right? And right, right when that birth is about to happen, things get really intense. And that's what we can expect at the end of human history, things to get really intense. That's the labor pains, right? But then the baby's born, right? That's what's gonna happen. That's, that is where God is taking this. This baby... This new creation is growing here on this earth in some in seed form. It's growing through his church, okay? But that baby's born when Jesus comes back, okay? I hope, I hope, you, I hope you see that. I hope you see this beautiful progression. Right at the end, things are going to get really intense. But that just means the baby's about to be born, that just means the new creation is here, okay? And, and by the way, I think, I think that does help us understand the timing of things. Now, I, we don't make this a, a huge sticking point for membership here, but I, I do wanna just point it out that what's, what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that when we are resurrected, creation is resurrected. That's why creation is groaning for this to happen, Because creation was cursed because we were cursed. We were over creation. We were cursed because of our sin. Therefore, everything under us was cursed. So creation is longing for the day when that curse is fully undone, when the curse of death is undone. Which, what does the Bible say? The last enemy to be destroyed is death, right? So putting that all together, we see that the timing that it seems to me the timetable the Bible is presenting is that when Jesus comes back, that's it that's it. It's a wrap. When Jesus comes back then, then there's the final judgment, there's the resurrection and then the new, the new creation the new earth. And I, I just hopefully that you find that helpful and I, I think it is deeply biblical and, and, uh, and helpful to think of it that way but in conclusion, taking up um, a little longer than I wanted to go but that's okay. I want us to, to draw this to a conclusion. Our hope is that the future of God's people is, and for the created order, is, is salvation, not condemnation. The world's already condemned. Jesus came to bring salvation to the world, not condemnation. But the only way sons of peace will partake of this, well, only the sons of peace will partake of this, not sons of rebellion So this is an interesting twist on our verse today is that in order to be a peacemaker, you must first become God's child. You must first become God's child to be a peacemaker. And it is being a peacemaker that evidences your sonship. So don't strive to be a peacemaker thinking you will earn sonship like we talked about. Humbly go before the throne of God let him bestow sonship on you through faith and let him make you a peacemaker and walk in the way of Jesus, which we know is the way of bearing our cross. That is the way. This is the way. This is the way. <laughs> I mean, I love that phrase. I don't care if it's, uh, if, uh, it's in Star Wars. It's, it's an amazing phrase. and I hope, I hope we hijack it, honestly. But before we take communion, I want I want you to examine yourself, get in a serious mindset. Are you a peacemaker? Or do you cause divisions? Are you a peacemaker, or do you cause divisions? Do you claim to know the Prince of Peace, yet live a life of conflict with your family and other believers? If you see conflict in your life, that is a symptom of sin that needs to be dealt with and crucified. Now, I know there are some situations where you really have crucified yourself and the other person is really the one bringing sin in. But don't jump to that conclusion so fast. Because more often than not, we have all contributed sin to the situation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day. So come to the Lord and find new mercy and forgiveness. Choose to walk the way of Christ and be a peacemaker. And be vindicated as God's sons. Be shown to be God's sons and daughters. And ultimately look for the hope of our full adoption. The redemption of our bodies when Christ returns. Let's pray. God in heaven you are incredible that you would, you would give us these promises so clearly in your word. And forgive us for neglecting them. Forgive us for causing divisions in your body that are unnecessary. Oh, there are divisions that are necessary when your gospel is trampled on. And we pray that you would cut out, that you would purify from your church anyone who rejects Christ and his gospel. But God, may we have a deep unity in Christ across denominational lines, across personality lines, cross-cultural lines. May we see Christ as our true king and the unifier, the one who brings peace to the world through the gospel. And as we take communion, may we do so in unity as one body in Christ. We thank you for your son. None of this would be possible without him, Lord. So we thank you in his name through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.